This week on the show, we have a follow-up about previous jail advantages. We tell you how to install Prometheus, Node Exporter, and Grafana. Calibrating your touchscreen on OpenBSD, OpenSense 21.1, uh, Marvelous Mercat released, Nomad BSD 1.4 RC1 is out, and we're all shedding a bit of a tear for i386 in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 391, I-386 Tear Shedding, recorded on the 17th of February 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap, the online backup for the truly paranoids. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find out more. Hi, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome. We are fresh back with new interesting things happening in and around the BSD uh, space, I would say. And the headlines start with follow-up about FreeBSD jail advantages by Rubenert. And so um, he writes, the first Ukrainian reader to email me, Privit, I think that is, asked me to clarify what I meant here in the introductory post about FreeBSD jails. Yeah, there he says, yeah, much has been written about the potential security benefits of isolating processes, but I shamelessly use them foremost for keeping my ports clean. So keeping uh, different sets of packages separated. Uh, which is actually what ports were originally invented for, rather than their security benefits. You know, the original point of of jails, sorry, not port, yeah, the original point of jails was actually to be able to have multiple different combinations of versions of MySQL, Apache, and PHP installed on the same machine instead of needing separate web servers. Uh, so it makes sense to use jails that way because that's what they were originally introduced 20-something years ago for. Their security benefits are a huge advantage though. So uh, Ruben says, you know, my Plex jail has everything for video encoding in it, whereas my Minecraft jail has all of the JDK stuff. The conflicts aren't really an issue, but it's just simpler to have different systems for different things and they only have the packages they need. And it means that, you know, when I'm installing an update, I'm not gonna intentionally break something else just because I had to update the version of some package. So he says, I admit I ran uh, a lot of justifications together into a single paragraph because I wanted to get to configuring the jails themselves. They're also, by and large, not specific to FreeBSD's flavor of containers, though I still think it's easily the most elegant implementation. Sometimes the simplest solution really is the best one. Let me address something first. People were surprised at how cautious I was about security as a potential benefit. There's a stubborn industry perception that containers negate or reduce the need for other standard security practices, that somehow wrapping a service in a container intrinsically renders them immune to security problems. Like Ruben's saying there, totally not the case. Uh, Docker and Kubernetes crowd weren't the first to push this, but they are the highest profile. The inappropriate application of these technologies can create entire new classes of security issues and hasn't helped that the tools themselves have also introduced their own critical bugs. Uh, so back to FreeBSD jails, uh, the process isolation tool is great. They're great for security if configured with the same mature and maturity and care as you would the host, such as user management permissions, configuring the services to only listen on the right uh, addresses and ports, installing your system updates, and so on. A jailed environment is a great additional layer of security, but it absolutely does not absolve a system administrator's responsibilities elsewhere. If it sounds like I'm being overly cautious or critical, it's only from reading those glowing posts for many years and being convinced that the direction the industry is taking. With that in mind, jails let you do some cool stuff. 
They let you expose only the portions of the host file systems that the services are supposed to see, which can even include hiding specific binaries or system tools. They hide the processes from other jails, but you can also hide them from the host itself. You know, jails can let you create specific uses and groups and permissions that are unique to that environment, and you can build uh, a custom-based system and packages specific to what the service needs, which means it allows you to remove unnecessary components and reduce the security surface. FreeBSD jails can also run on top of ZFS and add a whole new suite of extra tools for building and maintaining your jails more easily without having to learn an extra set of over-engineered tools or complicated configurations. And then, you know, we won't even get into the advantages of being able to delegate permissions to a jail so that the jail can do things to ZFS, but only the things you specify. Uh, that leads us to our comment about keeping ports clean. Uh, I still subscribe to Einstein's uh, paraphrased law of package management, <laughs> installing the fewest packages you need for a system and no fewer. And that's why I don't consider tools like Bash cross-platform, despite the hand wringing that generated from a specific person on Twitter. Uh, jails let you install only the packages you need for the specific service. Uh, Pudrier itself even uses jails to build those packages specifically so that it can make sure when it's compiling program X, only the dependencies Y and Z are installed, and it doesn't get contaminated with some other package you're also going to build later. Uh, since some programs are bad about, oh, I will just take advantage of all the libraries you have installed. Uh, so the package builds with this extra library it happened to have found, uh, but that won't necessarily be there on your system. Those kind of hidden dependencies can create a mess. And so Pudrier uses a fresh jail for each uh, build so that it knows only the things that actually declared as dependencies are installed, so you don't end up with any of those hidden dependencies. And because it uses ZFS for that as well, it can do a ZFS rollback on that jail after each package build. Uh, you know, it builds the packages, copies out the files at once, does a ZFS rollback, and now it's back to having a clean jail, and it can do it the next one, uh, and it's much faster than if it had to rebuild that jail from scratch each time. Mm. Yep, a lot of benefits, and it's good to enumerate them and let people know about it. Cool, so thanks for this, uh, yet another good blog post. Uh, Ruben Ert? Yes, uh, I missed getting to meet up with Ruben in Tokyo because, well, it's two years now of not being able to go. Oh, don't rub it in. Oh, it's so long. Um, but yeah, that's what it is. So next thing is that we have the history of FreeBSD part four TCP IP from Clara Systems. Yep, uh, so this is the part four of our series on the history of FreeBSD. And this one is about, uh, you know, BSD's contribution to TCP IP. Ah, yes. They talk about DARPA coming knocking and uh, how it all started back in the day. Yep. And, you know, the, the BBN version versus the Bill Joy version of TCP and, uh, you know, how uh, on the machines with one megabit interfaces, the BSD and the BBN versions both worked about the same. Uh, but at Berkeley, they had access to some new hardware that was three megabits. And on that one, the BBN one would still only do about a megabit and be and use all the CPU, whereas the BSD one could actually do all three megabits. Mm. Oh yes, there was a famous shootout there between the two. Yeah. So if you don't know this story, it's definitely uh, worth reading the article. And then also go on YouTube and search up Kirk McCusick's talk about it because he adds a special flavor that only Kirk can. Yeah, because he was there live and in the flesh back then. Yeah, so great article, very nicely written, and we know a bit more of where TCP IP started off that is now powering the internet and other 
networks. Then we found uh, a nice tutorial to uh, run Prometheus, Node Exporter, and Grafana to put them all together to get some information what your nodes are doing or your machines with some little graphics and cool, uh, you know, charts. Uh, it's very simple. You install the three packages, Prometheus, uh, Node Exporter, and Grafana 5. By now, it should be probably Grafana 6 or 7, uh, but that doesn't matter. Uh, you uh, activate this in rc.conf using sysrc, uh, using the name and then underscore enable equals yes, so that you can start it later. But before you do that, you need to edit your user local etc Prometheus YAML file, where you need to go to the job name section. And there you add the uh, static configs to the targets that you are uh, scraping, that you want to get the data from. In this case, we're doing it on localhost, but it could be any machine on your network that has the node exporter installed. And then you start the three services, Prometheus, Node Exporter, and Grafana. Then you go to your uh, Grafana server's IP address, port 9090. And, uh, ah, no, this is your Prometheus server, sorry, 90, port 9090. And there you can um, see Prometheus's interfaces where you can run simple expressions uh, to graph some simple data. But if you really want to get fancy with the graphing, you uh, go to Grafana. Uh, where you first go to your IP address port 3000, this is Grafana's default port, and then it asks you first to log in. The initial login is admin admin, and it immediately asks you to set up a new password, of course. Then on the home dashboard, you click add source and add a data source for it. Of course, this is Prometheus, and you provide the settings where Prometheus is installed, again, at port 1990. Uh, you save and test that, then you can import a dashboard from uh, Grafana, where people upload the ready-made Grafana dashboards, and you can just browse to the ones you like. And if it supports uh, Prometheus, you can set a filter for those. It will uh, then give you an ID. This ID you can put into your dashboard, and then it will download this right away. It's just a simple JSON uh, file. And then you can point that to your data that is being filled uh, in the background from your node exporter, and then it will give you nice and shiny graphics of your system, whatever it's doing. Yeah, uh, I saw, um, I think, Alan Summers, I think it was, uh, recently just built a Prometheus node exporter for FreeBSD's NFS stat. Ah, uh, yes. Which allows you to see uh, some of the stats of like how busy your NFS server is, which uh, is something I'm most interested in. Mm -hmm. And you can uh, search on uh, Freshports for any node, other node exporters uh, for databases and other systems that give yeah, you... Yeah, so there's there's one for sysctl. Uh, and I think separately in, I think it's under contrib or something, somewhere in the OpenZFS stuff, there's one. So starting with OpenZFS 2.0, but I actually backported this to FreeBSD 12.2. So all versions of FreeBSD that are new support it. Um, there are per dataset sysctl stats on the number and total amounts of reads and writes per dataset. So they reset to zero on reboot, but you can, you know, if your system, if your disk is very busy, you can tell which dataset is doing it by looking at these numbers. Uh, and there's an influx DB thing for it in upstream OpenZFS yeah. that you can use to extract that data and put it into influx, and then you can feed that into Grafana. And I think the Prometheus node exporter uh, for sysctl the CCTL exporter probably would be able to grab that data uh, as well. So there's at least two different ways to grab that data and graph it. It's very interesting to know, you know, which data set is doing what when. Especially, you know, if you have a bunch of separate jails, you can tell which jail is causing all the, the disk usage. The I.O., yeah. And it's I think it's a good 
way of teaching yourself what your system is doing, like what ha what's happening when you download something, like is only the disk involved or only the CPU or the memory as well. So opens your eyes to what systems are doing every day. Cool. Then it's time for the news roundup this week. We have an article from OpenBSD or about OpenBSD to calibrate your touchscreen. Yeah. So this one uh, here says, I didn't expect it, but my refurbished T460S comes with a touchscreen. It is recognized by default in OpenBSD, and while not calibrated as is, it's actually pretty simple to solve. So looking at the D message, we see that it's an LG in-cell touchscreen. And looking at Xorg, we see some more detail about the LG display, and that it was manufactured in 2016. <laughs> so to calibrate the screen, simply start XTS scale, in your nearest available X term and click on the crosses that appear on the screen. Or I'm guessing, I think you're supposed to tap on them, not click. Right? The point is to, to calibrate the touchscreen. So the settings can be tested right away by using WSCons and throwing out those new numbers. So yeah, as you run the XCS scale, it'll give you a new set of calibrations. And if you just set those, then you'll be able to do stuff. Uh, and so the value can be added to your WSCons CTL in ETC. So that'll apply it reboot. It says, this doesn't seem to interfere with my click pad. And this allows us to draw from the GIMP using our finger. So you can see the nice finger painting that they made of Puffy and securing the internet with his OpenBSD laptop. Well, that's not too bad <laughs> for, for drawing. Apparently you can also use Alt plus finger to scroll the screen uh, <laughs> and to move windows using CWM. Select a tab and scroll the page on Firefox and so on. I may be missing something, but the screen does not seem to provide multi-touch, so there's no pinch to zoom. Nice and straightforward. And now, let's join me in a moment of silence, uh, and let's all shed a tear for 386. The silence doesn't have to be long. Um, so John Baldwin writes on the FreeBSD announce mailing list, FreeBSD i386 has been demoted to tier 2 for FreeBSD13.x. So uh, this is probably not a shock to many people, but it's uh, a sad realization of our times. So he writes, FreeBSD is designating i386 as a tier two architecture starting with FreeBSD 13.0. The project will continue to provide release images, binary updates, and pre-built packages to the 13.x branch. However, i386 specific issues, including uh, security advisories, may not be addressed in 13.x. The i386 platform will remain tier one on FreeBSD 11.x and 12.0. X. More background. The i36 32-bit x86 architecture has been a substantial part of the FreeBSD project history and success. FreeBSD began with 386 as the only supported architecture, and the ease of availability of i386 computers was key to FreeBSD's growth and adoption. However, the computer industry and the x86 architecture have evolved over time. For at least the past decade, 64-bit x86 has been the dominant FreeBSD architecture both in terms of users and active development. The FreeBSD i386 user base has steadily declined and is now on par with other tier 2 architectures. As a result, the i386 architecture will be demoted to a tier 2 architecture starting with FreeBSD 13.0. Uh, due to i386 history as a tier 1 architecture and its existing install base, the project will continue to provide a high level of support for i386 in FreeBSD 13.x. This will give existing i386 users extra time to migrate to a fully supported architecture for future FreeBSD releases. For FreeBSD 13.x, the FreeBSD project commits to providing release images, binary updates, and pre-built packages for i386. The FreeBSD release engineering and security teams will provide 
to build, test, and distribute uh, errata notices and security announcements or advisories uh, artifacts for i36 alongside all other supported platforms. However, errata notices and security advisories issues that are specific to i36 or that require unique development for i36 may not be addressed. The userland ABI will continue to be preserved in 13.x similar to other tier 1 platforms. And for branches beyond 13.x, like 14.x in the future, the FreeBSD project reserves the right to reduce the amount of support provided. We anticipate that i36 will receive reduced support in line with existing tier 2 platforms for 14.x and will announce the level of support i386 will perceive or receive in 14.x as we are closer to the 14.0 release date. Due to the prevalence of existing i386 binaries, we also anticipate that we will avoid breaking userland ABI in future branches. Specifically, we expect that time underscore t will remain 32 bits for i386. Support for i36 on currently supported FreeBSD branches 11.x and 12.x will continue as their current tier 1 level for the duration of their support lifetime. On behalf of the FreeBSD core, port manager, release engineering, and security teams. Yeah, so, you know, the number of people using 32-bit-only machines has gone way down, especially like i386, 32-bit-only machines, is way down. Uh, and in particular, it was a real problem with some of those side-channel mitigation things mm. that we had to do around uh, not just Spectre Meltdown, but like, you know, the follow-on five or six of them that happened. A bunch of those needed wholly different solutions for i386 because the the memory footprint is so much different and so on and it's just probably not a great use of the project's time to keep supporting you know legacy generally there's not been much new uh, i386 hardware in the last 10 years yeah so i don't expect there's many people that are using i386 because they have to and so they'd be better served using amd64 anyway Mm. Yeah, it's been a while. It's it's a long journey, and there's a long tail, of course, where people then need time to switch over. But, uh, but yeah, basically, i386 is going to become a bit more best effort, and you know the project will try to do just as much as they do for AMD64 for it, as far as releases and advisories and so on. Uh, but if it's problems that are specific to uh, i386 only, they're just not going to get the same level of commitment as they had before. Uh, but you know, I think anybody who's using i386 still expects that. Yeah. You know, uh, a lot of other operating systems have just dropped the platform entirely. Silence uh, and, by this point. Yeah, so from one major release to the other, and yeah, it's yeah, it's a it's also a resource question. Like, how many developers can work on this, and uh, where does the resources go? Okay, so uh, after a kind of a sad part here, we have a new release of OpenSense 21.1, the marvelous Mercat release. And that is, uh... oh, for more than six years, they write, OpenSense is driving innovation through modularizing and hardening the open source firewall with simple and reliable firmware upgrades, multi-language support, hardened BSD security, fast adoption of upstream software updates, as well as a clear and stable two-clause BSD licensing. So 20... 1.1, nicknamed the Marvelous Mercat, is the relentless continuation of open source dedication. The last six years were not always easy, but we are happy to be where we are now and have the community to thank for it. Yep, they talk uh, a little bit about continuing to deprecate custom configuration inputs for things like DNS mask, which is going to switch to a pluggable file-based approach, uh, and unbound is to follow that in the 21.7 updates. But uh, some of the big things is they now use an different thing for the web GUI login that allow case insensitive matching of LDAP user credentials, removed uh, an unused gateway API feed, 
lots of other changes like that. Defer IPv6 disable in interface code to ensure PPP interfaces actually exist before we try to disable IPv6. Uh, fix PPP links not linking uh, in the advanced configuration. Deprecated, uh, read deprecated flags allowing family specs in alias calls and so on. Bunch of other stuff and obviously lots of software upgrades. Upgrades for plugins like Acme Client, Bind, FRR, uh, Maltrail, Smart, and Telegraph. Okay. So yeah, check it out and uh, update if you need the latest versions. Yep. We also have an update here from Nomad BSD. They have their next release, 1.4 release candidate. Uh, and that's out. It's basically a system based on FreeBSD 12.2 uh, with some improvements to the installer, uh, including fixing some problems booting uh, systems solved via UEFI and uh, making sure the suitable graphics card driver will now be installed and set up instead of using auto detection on the installed system. The automatic graphics driver detection has also been improved. If no better graphics driver can be found, it will fall back to VESA or the SCFB if you're on EFI. Uh, auto detection will now run only if the system configuration changed since the last time, so it doesn't have to run it every time. Uh, they also improved touchpad support and some RC scripts and a bunch of other stuff. It looks interesting. So if you're following that, definitely go check it out. Mm -hmm. And then we have uh, from Chris Seibelman, uh, find uh, mostly doesn't need Xarchs today on modern Unixes. Yeah, so this one I'm interested in seeing what he has to say because I still mostly use the Xargs and that's, I wonder if that's still better. So anyway, he says, uh, I've been using Unix for long enough to, that find pipe Xargs is a reflex. When I started and for a long time afterwards, Xargs was your only choice for effectively executing command over a bunch of find results. If you didn't want to run one grep or RM or whatever per file, uh, there was generally reasonably slow in those days, you reached for find some criteria dash print pipe Xargs. There were uh, some gotchas in traditional Xarg usage, and one of those is why GNU Xargs and GNU find and various other tools grew the option to use a null byte as the separator of files. So if a file has a space in the name, Xargs will treat it as two separate files and that would confuse it. So you really should do find whatever criteria dash print zero, and it will print each file name terminated by a null byte. Uh, and then if you run that, pipe that into Xargs dash zero, Xargs will read each of those separated by the null byte and you will get uh, no problems with files with spaces or weird characters in the name. Uh, for usage with find, uh, all of them or, uh, all of this is unnecessary on modern Unix has been for some time because Fine uh, folded this into itself. Modern versions of Find have the dash exec flag, or sorry, they don't have just the traditional exec flag. They run one command per file, but also an augmented version in which aggregates the arguments together like Xargs does. This argument or augmented version is used by ending the exec with a plus symbol instead of a uh, semicolon. So if you do find dot some criteria, dash exec, grep, dash capital H, whatever, then the quoted curly braces for the, um, the to substitute the file name, but then end it with a plus instead of a semicolon uh, or escape semicolon, it will keep adding more file names onto the end of it until the max command line length. Uh, although I sometimes still reflectively use fine pipe xargs more and more, I'm trying to use the simplest form of just fine with the augmented exec flag. My reflexes can learn new tricks eventually. This uh, augmented form of exec is in the single Unix specification for fine. So unsurprisingly, it's not just in GNU fine, but also in OpenBSD, NetBSD, 
FreeBSD and Illumos. I haven't tried to look up a flying man page on whatever commercial Unixes are left, uh, probably at least macOS and AIX. Based on the rationale section of the single Unix specification for Fine, this very convenient Fine feature was introduced in System 4 R or System V R4. Uh, the single Unix specification also explains why they didn't adopt the argument more Unixy option of print zero for null terminated output. In practice, everyone has adopted print zero as well, even OpenBSD and Illumos. I assume without checking that they have. Uh, xargs dash zero because it doesn't make sense to adopt one without the other it says ps unfortunately this feature is not quite as flexible as it looks both the specification and the actual find implementation require that the curly braces at the end or be at the end of the command instead of anywhere in it this means you can't do something like find dot 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 uh, exec mv file to sumder plus this makes life slightly uh, simpler for finds code and probably only rarely matters in the actual usage. Uh, and so another case we're using XARGs with the capital I flag uh, and some separator is helpful. The main reason why I like to do fine blah, 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 print zero pipe XARGs is you can do dash N some small number, like say five or 10 or it depends how many files you're gonna find. But then uh, XARGs on FreeBSD and I think most other platforms has capital P and a number and we'll run that many of them in parallel. So, you know, we have multiple CPUs now, and sometimes if you're doing RM on a big directory or whatever, it's end up limited by the, you know, this process is only running on one CPU. So being able to say, hey, take this giant list of files, uh, break it up in batches of say 100 with dash N100, and feed them to RM, but run four RM commands concurrently. So you'll make a list of 100 files and tell RM to delete them, then start a second RM on the second 100 files and a third RM on the, the third 100 files and fourth on the fourth. And then when the first one finishes, you'll start a fifth one with the next 100 files and keep going like that and just keep four RM processes each pounding away at 100 files at a time or something to that effect. Depending on what you're doing, this can save a lot of time by adding some parallelism. Yeah, unless you want to destroy your operating system much faster. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, use it on. on so it depends what you're doing. You know, <laughs> the Xargs thing is still my preferred way of doing it. Partly just because it's easier to remember that syntax than to remember that oh, it's the double curly braces with this other thing and the plus are they escaping the semicolon? And because I use that same Xargs trick for a bunch of other things, not just for find. So yes, you don't have to do it that way. Find has this other thing, but sometimes Xargs is still better. Yep, and so it's good to make comparisons. But I didn't actually know all the history of it, so big thanks to Chris for, for figuring that all out and sharing it. Mm -hmm. So here uh, we have OpenBSD KDE news. Uh, there's a status report over at undeadly.org, and it reads, OpenBSD has managed to drop KDE 3 and KDE 4 in the 6.8 to 6.2 release cycle, uh, 6.9, sorry. Uh, that makes me very happy because it was a big piece of work and long discussions. Uh, this, of course, brings questions. KDE Plasma 5 package missing. So after half a year of work, they managed to successfully update the Qt5 stack on the latest LTS version 5.15.2. On the whole, the whole, uh, the most work was updating Qt Web Engine. What a monster. With my CPU power at home, I can build it one to two times a day, which makes testing a little bit annoying and time intensive. But today we can happily uh, announce or uh, can be happy about an up-to-date KDE stack in OpenBSD. 
currently at the end of January, our stack is very up to date. Qt 5.15.2, Qt Creator 4.14.0, KDE Frameworks 5.78.0, KDE Applications 2012.1, almost everything. KDE uh, KDevelop 5.61, Krita 4.4.2, KMyMoney 5.11, and DigiCam 7.1.0. Uh, I try to keep KDE Applications 20.12.x uh, stable until the 6.9 release. Let's move on to the topic of KDE Plasma. The Plasma desktop and some other KDE applications have a strong dependence on Wayland. As long as there is no Wayland under the OpenBSD, uh, there is also no KDE Plasma. It can be observed that more and more KDE applications already prefer the strong dependency on Wayland. For example, Spectacle. In summary, no OpenBSD Wayland support, no KDE Plasma, and probably less and less KDE applications. So this week on the show, we also are covered, as uh, many shows before, by Tarsnap. Tarsnap is the online backup for the truly paranoids, and it is your gateway to making backups securely, because the way it works is you have a bunch of data that you want to back up and retrieve at one point in the future, hopefully never, but let's uh, back those up. Uh, just the same. We want those data to be uh, backed up by Tarsnap and it reads that data, segments and duplicates those by hashing the blocks and figures out, yeah, what are the unique blocks in there? Because there could already be some savings in there. Then it compresses those blocks and hashes them with a special algorithm. And this is still all happening on your machine. Nothing has happened yet on uh, any online things with the network. It's still on your machine. And once that is done, it encodes those blocks and creates the encrypted files and then the encrypted files leave your system so they will not be encrypted on the remote system this is on uh, aws but they will be already encrypted when they hit the network so that no one can encrypt them on the fly or on the remote server somewhere it's only on your machine and as you uh, run tarsnap and as part of the configuration you create a key this key is your <laughs> file or your only way back to get your readable files back. So in case you need to do the reverse, you need to get your data back, you use the key in combination with Tarsnap, and that is the only way to unencrypt the data. No one else can see those. Uh, they sit in Tarsnap uh, on the server in AWS, and it's just encrypted there. No one can read it. It's just gibberish for everyone. But for the people, probably only you, uh, who have the key, they can decrypt that. The Tarsnap people don't store that key nowhere. If, if you lose the key, then everything is not uh, being uh, retrievable anymore. No one can get to your data. And that's why it's very uh, great for the people who are super paranoid about their backups. And that's a good way. You can also look at the source code of Tarsnap. It's in there, you can read it. Uh, they're very securely minded and you can read out all the design decisions that they made in Tarsnap. And the pricing is just very cheap. For a, maybe a $10 uh, that you charge up in your account, you can store a lot of data before you have to recharge and they will let you know when you have to. But uh, because it's encoding and encrypting, not encrypting and compressing, uh, you can save much more data than you had originally backed up. So check out Tarsnap and other cool features it provides in the website tarsnet.com slash bsd now. All right, uh, we have some feedback and questions. 
So let's start with those. The first is, of course, uh, we should always let you know that we are uh, having this section only for you people. And if you don't send us questions in the future, this will be a very lonely section for us. So we will probably have to cut the episode short, but uh, that's easy for you to solve by sending us more feedback and questions. The address is feedback at bsdnow.tv. And then we will cover those questions in a future episode. Anything you like, uh, something you always wanted to know or ask us, or you have a problem that we can hopefully help you with or the community here. So this is your way to uh, get into the show. The first one who did this uh, was Carl. Uh, he had a Firefox webcam audio solution, and that refers to an earlier episode. So he writes, Hi guys, I emailed you a couple of months ago about problems with webcam audio and video conferencing on Firefox. I thought I'd follow up with a solution to the problem I was having in case it's of use to you other listeners, to your other listeners. Yeah, good idea. So the problem uh, I was having was that sometimes the microphone on my webcam would stop working with Firefox. I finally realized what was going wrong when I ran package info dash capital D Firefox. When Firefox was using OSS, everything worked. But if I installed a package that installed SNDIO as a dependency, such as Chromium, Firefox would switch to using SNDIO and only the default playback and recording device would work. As my webcam microphone was on DEF DSP3, it would not be picked up by default. Hmm. Running package info dash capital D Firefox explains that there is a Firefox configuration option, media.cube.backend, that can be used to choose your audio backend. I set it to OSS and now everything works as expected. I can choose playback and recording devices before I start a conference call. Great. Hope this helps someone out there. Oh yes, I think this will be good to know. And we can always refer back to this episode and to this feedback uh, in case someone needs to dig it up again. Good. So yeah, happy to share things uh, that you found out with the community in this part as well. So that is good uh, thing to do. All right, then there is another one. Uh, Michael with an open ZFS question. So uh, Michael writes, hello, I love your podcast. Thank you. Really great job. Oh, thanks. Glad you like it. Uh, for feedback and questions, I have a question about OpenZFS and FreeBSD. OpenZFS has a feature for native encryption data set uh, or the pool. And in FreeBSD 13, it works beautiful. But I want to ask you if it is possible for using native encryption for root ZFS, for example, for a whole pool. Uh, so uh, Alan currently ran out, but I try to answer that uh, nevertheless. So there is, so there had been work done on the loader uh, because the loader needs to know about the encryption because otherwise it cannot make heads and tails of where the data set starts that has the uh, remaining operating system on it. And so I think this is, if it's not underway, then it's already done. So people are definitely working on this. And I think it's uh, finished by the time FreeBSD 13 comes out because that is a very real use case that people not only want to encrypt their non-bootable partitions, but also the one that hosts their boot code and operating system files. And so I'm fairly sure that this works in 13 and um, there will probably be instructions happening uh, or appearing in the handbook for people who want to do this. So uh, be careful with this because if you encrypt something, you need to make sure that you not lose the keys to unencrypt those. So be careful with that. Um, definitely try it out first on a testing system or a little, little jail or a beehive. And then you have 
the uh, yeah the way to figure out whether it works or not. But I'm fairly sure they have implemented that by now. And because I knew people were working on this, and I'm fairly sure they have it done by the time FreeBSD 13 comes up. And yeah, I think that uh, is pretty much uh, this part of the question. Thank you for that. And last but not least is Dave with a buffer bloat uh, topic. Dave writes, hey folks, now that I have two and a half kids uh, doing school from home, uh, one partner full-time video conferencing and no peace for my own work because of constant shadow IT requests. Ah, uh, yes, I can feel that. Uh, I need to address the elephant in the room. Network instability due to buffer bloat. I finally have enough asymmetric bandwidth uh, for this to be a problem. And while I dealt with this neatly on my OpenBSD firewall using uh, OpenBSD's PF queuing, I'm not clear how to achieve the same outcome with FreeBSD. Uh, do we have any tips about dealing with buffer bloat and perhaps using code, Codel or Cake algorithms on FreeBSD? Do I need a custom kernel, which I have successfully put off since now with altq? So, uh, and he also provided a bit of a link uh, information about buffer bloat and extra things we can look up. So um, there is uh, Alan coming back. So we're at the buffer bloat parts and uh, remember the buffer bloat uh, thing is different on OpenBSD than on FreeBSD's PF because of the different uh, firewall uh, implementations here. So this is the feedback uh, about the buffer bloat part and I covered the other uh, uh, questions already so that's cool. And uh, there's the buffer bloat question. So if it's possible to have the same on FreeBSD. I'm not sure if they provide the CODEL or CAKE algorithms on FreeBSD if that is already ported. Because as you probably know, FreeBSD's PF is a bit different than the one on OpenBSD. Uh, so I'm not sure if that is um, already in the same yeah, uh, um, code state. So I wrote I some say. stuff for a FreeBSD journal article a couple of years ago about using uh, IPFW's WNet and its queuing to do some stuff like this. Um, I think the problem with Alt-Q was that it only ever wanted there to be one uh, queue on the NIC, and most NICs have multiple queues now to be faster. So I don't actually know the answer off the top of my head. Yeah, it's probably something different than in FreeBSD versus OpenBSD because of the different ways they, uh, the firewalls evolved over time. So if someone from our listeners knows, then let us know. We will cover it here in this, um, or a reference to this episode, and then we'll all be a bit wiser afterwards. So yeah, that uh, is pretty much uh, covering uh, everything that we have for this episode. Thank you for listening, and definitely check in back next week where we are here with a fresh new episode. Yeah, thank you. See you next week.